This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. The wheat generally looks pretty good this year, despite the continued drought in most of the southeast and the well below average rainfall we've gotten this fall. As wheat gets ready for the winter hibernation, there are a few insects out there, including cutworms that will feed all winter long, but also winter grain mites that tend to be worse in this area in the warmer and drier falls just like the one we've had. While winter grain mites can be much more prevalent in dry falls, it is not worth doing anything about them yet. With the wheat so close to dormancy, it won't be affected much by heavy feeding, but it can mean possibly damaging winter mite populations in the spring if it stays dry. Here's a radio excerpt from Jeff Whitworth, K-State entomologist from Ag Today Radio. Winter grain mites, as the name implies, are mostly around in the wintertime, although they can come around in the spring also, but they're a cool weather mite. They're not an insect. They're an arachnid, actually. They like temperatures probably between 30 and 50 degrees or 60 degrees. They like cool, cloudy days, or they will feed at night for the most part. They suck juice out of individual cells of the plant. As the wheat around the state is struggling for moisture in a lot of areas, these mites are competing with that moisture Uh, in that plant, and so they turn the the leaves yellow. The tips sometimes will kind of turn brown, but it actually can extend down the whole plant, can actually turn the whole plant yellow. The wheat, if it's not in dormancy, is real close or will be in dormancy real real soon. So the feeding that you have going on right now is really not going to hurt anything. The mites, once it gets a little bit colder, are going to go into dormancy themselves. They're going to lay eggs for the winter and then there's not going to be any more feeding. It's just now, if the plants are up uh, to the point where the mites are feeding on them, for the most part, they've got a pretty good root system established, we hope, and they're going to overwinter just fine. So the feeding that the mites are going to do this time of year is really not going to cause a problem. So spring could be a different story in the spring. If you have a lot of mites in the fall, they're going to lay a lot of eggs, and those eggs probably aren't going to go away. Now, if you get a lot of thunderstorms or heavy rains, it will wash the mites away. It will wash the eggs away, so they'll go someplace else. They won't be there. But be that as it may, if you have a lot of mites right now, we have no big moisture events all winter, you're probably going to have a lot of mites in that area. Remember, they, they can't fly. They don't hop. They don't jump. They just crawl a little bit or sometimes are blown by the wind. Uh, so that's they're not going to go very far is what I'm saying in the uh, spring. And if you got 20 to 50 mites per stem, per leaf, and the moisture is limiting, remember, if it's dry and the wheat's struggling, you might consider spraying a miticide or an insecticide for winter grain mites. If you have any questions about wheat pest or would like me to come identify some pest in your field, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell with the Wildcat Extension District, your Livestock Production Agent. What would you suppose the best time of year would be to work on livestock handling facilities? I would suggest the time of year that the facilities are not being used or when you have some time to put some thought and effort into their design. I would also suggest avoiding the time when the cowboys are bringing the critters into the pen or when the vet is on his way. 
The purposes of a good set of working pens are to provide a fast and efficient way to handle livestock and provide safe working conditions for people and animals. And not to be overlooked, a good set of handling facilities will provide a means to perform necessary management practices, such as herd vaccination or loading animals out for transportation. There is not one single design that is best for everyone. The design will vary depending on the type of livestock and even the class of animals, such as stalkers versus cow-calf pairs. The size of the operation, space restrictions, and personal preferences will all play a factor in the design process. If you're looking down the barrel of designing a facility, be sure to do your research. There are commercial alley and tub systems that are easy to adjust, but might be pricey. Some are even portable. You may consider working with a consultant, or you can call your local extension office for resources. There are many strategies to be considered, like a bud box design or curved alleys, and you can even combine several strategies into one design that will be best for your operation. Keep in mind that domesticated livestock have a field of vision of more than 300 degrees, so they can see quite a bit of their surroundings. So it's helpful when loading ramps and handling chutes have solid walls. This prevents animals from seeing distractions. Animals have a tendency to move from dark areas to lighter areas, provided that the light isn't glaring. You can add a spotlight directly onto a ramp or other area that will help animals move naturally into that direction. You can also use the animal's natural flight zone to move them quietly into the direction you need them to go. Consider the sounds and loud noises around the working facilities. Some equipment is really loud and can be unnerving for animals, especially if they are not handled regularly. When you minimize the use of prods that bruise or shock, you can reduce stress. There are prods that have flags or rattle paddles that are just as effective and less stressful. Reducing stress on the animal will reduce injuries and sickness for the animal as well as the employee. And this will increase overall efficiency. For more information, give me a call at the Wildcat Extension District, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is the David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents for the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties, with your K-State Research and Extension report. During cold weather, it is a priority for producers to keep their animals safe and warm. In addition to providing animals with food, water, and a shelter where they are able to get out of the wind and or rain to stay warm and dry. However, for young animals and animals that have recently given or are about to give birth, extra considerations should be taken to make sure they stay warm. To provide an extra source of warmth, straw and or shavings can be provided and heat lamps can be used. While heat lamps and straw or shavings can keep animals warm, the combination also increases the risk for barn fires. The chance of barn fires caused by heat lamps can be reduced if precautions are taken. There are many factors that affect the quality of a heat lamp. And if the heat lamp is poorly made, 
it can lead to an increased chance of it causing a fire. Short, thin cords, poor connections to the fixture, unreliable attachment points for hanging, and just general cheap construction are factors that reduce the quality of the heat lamp. The first tip to help prevent a fire caused by a heat lamp from starting is to use quality made heat lamps. The heat lamps that are made out of heavy duty plastic and are fully enclosed will help prevent the chance of a fire starting if the heat lamp were to fall and break. How the heat lamp is installed is also important. While it is convenient to hang heat lamps up with baling twine, it is safer to hang them up in a more permanent fashion using chains and if possible, hang them where livestock cannot reach them. In addition to using a quality made heat lamp and installing the heat lamp securely, use hard glass bulbs. Stay away from using bulbs that are made out of thin glass as the hard glass bulbs are less likely to shatter and break if the heat lamp were to fall. In addition to the heat lamp, bulbs, and installation of the heat lamp, there are other precautions that can be taken as well, including making sure to use a quality breaker box that is designed to trip the breaker if the heat lamp were to spark. You can also install a smoke detector in the barn to alert you of smoke so the fire can hopefully be caught before it gets out of control. And it is also important to keep a fire extinguisher in the barn so if a fire does start, you can hopefully stop it from spreading. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a Dave Strongs with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. Watering plants in the winter is one task that sometimes slips the mind of homeowners, but it is crucially important for any evergreen plants in your garden. Unlike deciduous plants, evergreen plants do not go dormant in colder temperatures and continually go through photosynthesis and respiration throughout the winter months. These processes require water, and if there is no precipitation, such as rain or snow, the plants will lose water overall. You can tell when evergreens are dehydrated when the leaves on the plants begin crumbling around the tips and edges. This is known as marginal leaf scorch, and it occurs because the plant cannot replace water in the leaves faster than it is used. To water plants during the winter, your timing is crucial to make sure that the plants stay healthy. Watering immediately before a freeze creates the possibility of killing the plant's roots and eventually the plant. Checking the weather before watering will show you the right timing for warm days and nights above freezing when water will do the most good. Just remember to use a watering can or to drain the water from any hose that you use so you don't have a freeze destroy your garden equipment accidentally. Marginal leaf scorch becomes severe in periods of high temperature, so why does this also happen in the winter with evergreens? One reason is because evergreen plants never go dormant and need a consistent supply of water, but the primary reason is because of the low humidity in the winter compared to in the summer. Leaves have opening called stomata, which open when the plant needs to take in carbon dioxide for photosynthesis and release oxygen. Because evergreen plants don't go dormant, they are constantly undergoing photosynthesis, and these pores are opening and closing even throughout the winter months. When these pores open, water can evaporate out, compounding water use and loss. 
gas. Water will always move from areas of high concentration, in this case inside the leaf tissue, to areas of low concentration, usually the outside air. If the water isn't replaced by uptake through the roots, the leaves dry up and scorch. In the summer, the evaporated water minimizes future water loss by increasing the humidity immediately around the leaf, but in the winter, the wind is so dry that any evaporated water and humid air is quickly carried away, keeping the concentration gradient static. Species that suffer from winter dehydration include boxwoods, hollies, and spruces, particularly hollies. Pines are typically the evergreen exception for winter watering because their leaves, the needles, are so thin that the pores water can evaporate out of are much smaller than on other evergreen species and deciduous trees. Although marginal leaf scorch can look alarming, most plants will snap out of the funk and push out a new set of leaves once the temperatures warm up. However, MLS can still stress plants out, making them more susceptible to other problems, so it is an issue you want to solve before it becomes severe enough to completely defoliate your evergreens. For more information on today's topic, contact your local extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.